at Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1, Matthew 22, and we'll look at verse 34. And again, on the back of our bulletin is the catechism question and answer. I think for context, we'll start with, our, again, reading our catechism question and answer. I'll read it to us to help us understand the selections for our scriptures this morning. So our question and answer for September. What did God reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? The answer is, the rule which God first revealed to man for his obedience is the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them <coughs> there is great reward <coughs> who can discern his errors declare me innocent from hidden faults keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins let not them have dominion over me then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, uh, that being Jesus, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is, gr- which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. A quick prayer. Lord, make known to us that which we thought we knew. Confirm in us your majesty and power and truth. Teach us. By the power of the Spirit of God, teach us. Convict us and transform us. Amen. So, uh, as most of you know, monthly we go through um, a catechism. Catechism is a learning device to help us. Um, It teaches us the important doctrines of Scripture. We've been going for... I think we're uh, seven, eight months now. I'm not really sure. I've lost track. But as we have done this, we've been spending time on who God is and His salvation. Um, We've talked about justification, sanctification, glorification, the benefits of the believers in Christ uh, as you live in death and resurrection. And our last catechism question and answer was about the wicked and God's dealing with the wicked. This is what the last catechism question and answer said most recently, and that was what is done to the wicked at death and at the day of judgment. And I think it's a good way for us to start to help us into this question. Here's the answer to that that question about the wicked at death and the day of judgment. Quote, at the day of judgment... I want you to listen to this. At the day of judgment, the bodies of the wicked being raised out of their graves shall be sentenced together with their souls to unspeakable torments with the devil and his angels forever. The wicked, quote, shall be sentenced. And that sentence is, quote, forever. Now, the question that ran through my mind, as we approach Scripture, don't approach it as if I know that, or I understand it, or that's right, but question in your mind what you read. And the first question that popped into my mind when I read through that again was, what kind of judge... Who does he think he is to give such judgment and for such of a term? Torment forever. The second question that ran through my mind, what standard would such a judge use to make such a sentence to damn someone And send them into torment forever. That's where our question picks up. The question, what did God reveal to man for the obedience of for the rule of his obedience? 
And when you see rule in the question, you could think standard. What did God reveal to man for the standard of his obedience? That's not God's obedience. That's man's obedience. The question itself answers my first question. Who is this judge that dare give such an eternal judgment? It's in the, the answer is in the question. God. God. And really, that's the only answer that can satisfy such question. Because he's the only one suitable for such judgment. And we'll come back to that point here in a little while. But the answer to our catechism question satisfies the other question that I was thinking about. By what standard would such horrific judgment be made? And the answer is in our answer. The moral law. And then you might be thinking, well, what's that? Well, it's also in our answer, the Ten Commandments. Now, that's very vague and general, and you could see all that. Here's the path we're going to take this morning. This is very topical, all over the scriptures, um, as we examine these three things. God, the duty of man before God, and the moral law as The standard of man's duty to God. Let me give you those three again. God is our first. The duty of man before God is our second. And the moral law as the standard of man's duty to God. So number one, this judge, this lawmaker, this lawgiver, God. I want you to think, I want us to do a mental exercise. It's an, it's a, it's a, a creative, imaginative exercise. I want you to think about it in your mind. Um, the average person, average human being, is about five six. That's average between men and women. Now, some of our fit, uh, height challenge. It's a, you bring out the average. <clears throat> five six. You average men and women. All right. Think about that height. Now, I want you to think about. The beautiful Ozark Mountains that we live in. Okay? The highest peak of the Ozark Mountains that's named is Turner Ward Knob, and it's in Arkansas. 2,463 feet. 2,463 feet. That would take 436 average people standing on top of each other to reach that height. 436. Now, the humble Ozarks that we live in, in illustration or comparison, one world trade, the One World Trade Center that's new is only 1,776. Kind of makes you feel pretty proud of the Ozark Mountains. It's the highest peaks, taller than the tallest building in the United States. But let's push it a little bit. The highest peak... In the Rockies is Mount Elbert, 14,400 feet. You could, you would have to stack seven Turner knobs from Arkansas to reach that peak. Seven knobs, Turner Ward knobs out of Arkansas to reach the peak of Mount Elbert. But of course, that's nothing. You've got Mount Everest. 
You need two Mount Elberts stacked on top of each other to reach the peak of Mount Everest, which is 29,000 feet. I'll take one more step. The diameter of the sun is 4.5 billion feet across. 4.5 billion feet across. You would need, side turned on its side, 157,000 Mount Everest to span across from one side of the sun to the other. 463 average human beings to reach Turner Ward Knob, seven Turner Ward Knobs to reach Mount Elbert, two Mount Elbert, Elberts to reach Mount Everest, 157,000 Everest to span across the sun. All that to say this, from a physical standard, what is man compared to sun? The sun. Mathematically, it's not comparable. It's impossible. It's incomprehensible in our minds. Now, I want you to ask the question as we consider God, what is man compared to God, him who created man and the sun? I'm sure we've all asked the question the last year, two years, three years, maybe even all of our lives. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with people? What's going on in our lives? Why does the world seem so immoral? Because they don't know the God who created the sun. They don't know the magnitude of the majesty and the morality of God. Two passages I want to share with you, and we read from Isaiah 40 already. Let's look back at it for just a second. Isaiah 40, to give us a taste of the magnitude of the majesty of God. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hallow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 25. To whom will you, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power. Who has the right to set the standard to make judgment, to set morality, to make a rule of obedience for man? 
it's this guy. It's this God in Isaiah 40 who holds all the waters of creation in the palm of his hand, who sets star from star by spanning it with his hand, who says this is right and this is wrong. It is the God who made all things. Look at verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is God, Yahweh, who judges and sets and rules all things and all people. Now flip back to the left with me in Job 38. As we see again who God is. Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, Job. And I will question you, Job. And you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation on the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what, on what were its bases sunk? And on who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now I just read these two passages to answer the question. Who is he who thinks he is so bold to not only give eternal judgment to mankind but to set the standard of rule by which he is to judge. And Isaiah 40 answered it perfect for us. It is Yahweh, the everlasting God, the creators of the ends of the earth. But who is man before God? Second point, man and his duty towards God. There's a word that kept coming to my mind as I was thinking about this, one we probably don't use as often and probably don't we could redeem it for the sake of our relationship with God. Obligation. Obligation. Mankind is obligated to the will of God. Mankind is legally bound to the will of God. Now there's a theological difference that I or a theological phrase I want to throw out there for you when I say the will of God. Because you might be walking down the street and you don't get hit by that car that crashed right in front of you. And you go, it was the will of God. I didn't get smacked. That's the, the, what we would call the hidden will of God. Okay? The, the sovereignly ordained will of God. 
But if you're having a conversation with your young son or grandson who's wanting to get mar- uh, wanting to live with his girlfriend outside of your outside of marriage, you would set them down and you would say, "Now, son, that's outside of the will of God." Now, that's a lot different from not getting smacked by the van, right? The second one, the not committing adultery is the revealed will of God or the commanded will of God. You see you see the difference? Well, mankind is obligated bound to the revealed will of God. Why? Because in the finality of things, nothing is yours. But everything is God's. Now you might say, wait, how, what are you talking about? You are you are legally bound to be obedient to the will of God, the revealed will of God, because without him, you don't exist. The blood that runs through your veins is not yours. It's his. The the air that is going into your lungs is not yours. It's his. The car, the house, the children, the family, the money, anything and everything is yours. Now, or is his. Because I blundered, I'm going to quickly fire off six verses to prove it to you. Deuteronomy 10:14. Behold, to the Lord your God belongs heaven and the highest heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Psalm 89:11. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, that would be God's, the world and all it contains, you have founded them. Exodus 9:29. Moses says to him, "As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer." that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 50, 12, For the world and its fullness are mine, declares the Lord. (coughs) One more. Trust me, I could continue. (coughs) Romans 11, 36, For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Everything you have or need in order to live another second is God's, is from God, and is given to you for the glory of God. Paul had to have this talk with the, the, the smart men in, in Athens, the pagan worshippers. In Acts 17, Paul says to them, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he continues on and says a few more things. But then he gets to this point. And Paul then tells them that based on that truth, that God has given man everything they need to live, and He needs nothing from them, he makes this declaration. That this God commands all people everywhere. That's it. He commands all people everywhere. 
and it is our obligation to obey our master, our creator, our sustainer. Let's use an illustration I think most of us can relate to. Most of us have probably had pets at some point in our life. Yeah? Okay. What is the expectation of your pet? Obedience. Alright? Why? What We don't really call pet owners masters anymore. That's probably socially not allowed. But that's what we used to call pet owners in training their dogs. Their master. And why are you the master of your dog? Because you're superior? Yes. You're wiser? Yes. You're in charge. They, they're there because you've allowed them to be there. What is your reaction when your dog doesn't obey? Irritation? Maybe anger? Why? Because the dog is to submit as the inferior to the superior, the master. It's incomprehensible to think that a house pet is to rule a house and its master. Incomprehensible. Some of you are probably thinking, Luke, are you likening the duty of a dog to its master to man's duty to God? Absolutely not. Because man's duty and obligation to God is infinitely greater than a dog's duty to obey its master. But yet... How many people in this world spent more time training their dog to obey last week than training themselves to obey God? We have, we've, we've got to understand this truth that's in Romans 9 that finds its, its, its use everywhere, and that's God is the potter and we are the clay. Creator, created. And in Romans 9, Paul states, What is the molded, or will will what is molded say to its molder, Will you have me fill in the blank? He says, Has the potter no right over the clay? So imagine a potter. The potter says, You're going to be shaped like this. The clay does not question or disobey the shape. The potter makes it. The potter says, after completion, you're going to sit down right here on this table. And the clay, which is now a pot, doesn't say, I don't want to be on this table. I want to be on this table. And then the potter says, you will hold such and such for my convenience, for my needs. The clay pot does not empty itself and say, no, I'd take something else if you'd mind. As the created, the clay, it is our duty, our obligation to do what is right and good as determined and willed as right and good by our creator. Micah 6, 8 says... He has told you, O man, which ironically is the words used by Paul in Romans 9. 
He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. I think the key words there are that the Lord requires something of you. Not just of you who sit in here in the church, not of you who just sit in here as someone who is a believer or a Christian. God requires of all mankind what is right to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. So there we've established God and man's duty towards God. Now I want to spend the rest of our time on the rule and standard of man's duty to God. And it's basically what our question begins to talk about. Now I'll give you a little heads up. If you haven't looked at the catechism lately, this is going to be a series of different things over the next 10 to 11 months. Because the next question is, and we're going to touch on this this morning, is what is the summation of the Ten Commandments? And then guess what we're going to go through over the next ten months after that? Each commandment. And so we'll be spending quite a bit of time on the commandments, on typically on the first Sunday of every month, which is typically when we look at our catechism question and answer. So the rule and standard by man's duty to God. Final point. We'll ask the question, what is man obligated to do? Now, I want to use explain it using an illustration. You know the nesting dolls? You know, you got a, a big nesting doll and you open the top and then you pull out a smaller nesting doll. And then you open the top of it and you pull out another one. You're familiar with those? Um, or imagine a, a set of... Um, measuring spoons that all sit in one another if you've never seen nesting dolls someone comes up to you with a, with the nesting doll imagery in our mind someone comes up to you and says i really i how do i fulfill my obligation to god or if they could say what is my duty to god my creator well the first nesting doll you're looking at it the big one and you could just simply say do the will of god that's your standard. That's your obligation to do the revealed will of God. In Romans 12, we're told that we must discern the will of God. But the way Paul writes that statement, he actually defines the will of God for us a little bit. He says, discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So your obligation to your creator is to do the will of God. It's to do what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Then you open and look at the second doll. Now what happens with each doll is we get to find out a little bit more about that will. The second doll says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And your neighbor as yourself. Your duty to God begins with your relationship with Him. And when I use the word relationship, I don't mean I have a relationship with God. And what I mean is, in relation to God, what is your position? 
Number one, do you stand justified before God? Number two, do you honor him, uphold him as he uh, as who he is, creator of all things? What is your relationship with him? Do you depend on him? Do you trust on him? And then flowing out of that relationship is your relationship with other creatures. Love God, love your neighbor. And what are those relationships really to look like? Well, the, the key word is love. Love. Well, you might say, well, what does love look like? And I would say, that's a good question. And then you get the third doll to answer that question. And they have on it the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can be split into two different categories. I'm sure you're familiar. The first four commandments giving us detail about our obligation and how we are to love God. First four commandments. The second or the, the second category, the last six, reveals our duty to God and our relationship with others, with man. That's why it's really important to study the Ten Commandments. To not just know, oh, God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel on Mount Sinai. And I can quote them. You have to understand that those Ten Commandments are a summation of how you are to... of your relationship between God and man. How you are to be obligated in your duty to God. The fourth doll, because the Ten Commandments are just Ten Commandments, and you might want to think there's a little bit more to it, well, that's where the fourth doll comes in. And it says, the whole counsel of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. All the scriptures are filling in the details regarding the Ten Commandments which are filling in the blanks for the two great commandments, which is filling in the blanks for do the will of God. Even the narratives, the stories, and the parables of the scriptures help you understand better the Ten Commandments and the revealed will of God. Now, I want to begin to finish by telling you about an article I stumbled across this morning. Here's the title. Our retreat from Christianity doesn't mean we've lost our sense of morality. I'm going to read it again because I didn't hear any laughter, so I don't think you heard it. Our retreat from Christianity doesn't mean we've lost our sense of morality. Here's the gist of the article. And I just, I was shocked to see it on my computer screen this morning in preparation with this. Here's the gist. It's okay if we leave Christianity because we can still operate and live morally with one another. The final conclusion that the writer of the article made, and this was in The Guardian. This isn't just like some random blogger. I mean, the Guardian's not, you know what I mean. 
His final conclusion was even more radical than what I just said. This is what he says. I enjoy visiting old churches and and imbibing the echoes of history and tradition. It is not, however, those old churches, in the empty pews that we should seek the causes of our moral dilemmas. Now, it's easy for us to just scoff and say, oh, okay. But I want you to understand why that's wrong. Why everything about that is wrong. Number one, and I think I've got three here maybe. Number one, to deny God leads to moral decay. Because morality, knowing right from wrong, comes from God. So to push him out or to go where he's not in order to solve moral problems is insanity. Society society cares more about training dogs than training for righteousness. Okay, so we've got to understand that. And as you push God out, as you, as you try to live and solve the problems of the world without church, without God, without the scriptures, what you end up doing is believing that the immoral things are moral. You understand that? When you, when you separate yourself from the moral one, you begin to see wrongly. The immoral actually begins to look moral. Hello? Think about what's going on. I Think about these terms, okay? Gender-affirming care. That sounds very moral. But let's talk about the immoral. Cutting up little kids. Or how about women's health care? It sounds so moral. But what is it? It's killing babies. A society that does not know the magnitude of God's majesty will take an immoral practice, as we've just explained, and attempt to make it a moral issue. Abandon God and you regress. You decline because you become morally confused. So you cannot deny God or get away from God to fix moral problems because you won't know up from down. Number two, I actually agree with him in his final statement. The answers aren't in empty pews. More likely, if you stumble across a church with empty pews, it's because of what's coming from the pulpit. And it's not God's will. The the word of God isn't preached in those places where the churches are emptying and dying. 
Why would they go to church when the, their pastor, who is conformed to the world, begins to speak like the world? That's like saying, I don't have to go to the store because I have bread at home. If I'm just going to hear the preacher say what Dr. Phil's saying, I'll just watch Dr. Phil and sleep in on Sundays. Stop watching Dr. Phil. He's not helpful. No, you can write that and put it in the basket and we'll talk about it later. I mean, if you have if you're curious why I'm saying that, I'm happy to talk to you about that. In that article, there was a recent poll within the Anglican Church that was quoted in the Times. I'm I'm assuming it's the London Times. This is what the poll showed about the pulpit. Majority of the clergy in the Anglican denomination supports priests to be allowed to be married gay couples. And that the church is to drop... And if you're just like, oh, you're just talking politics. Okay, how about this one? For the church is to drop its opposition to premarital sex. We're just talking about the law of the Lord here. That's what we're talking about. The third thing, this article suggests that the answers are within. It was almost like I was reading a... um, A satire article. The answers are from within us. And that the trend for people is to seek truth and direction from within. He, he quotes another uh, survey. Just one, and this is this is in Europe, which doesn't mean anything. Where we follow everything that they do. Just one percent of Anglicans and Catholics look to Scripture for moral direction. I'm going to repeat that. One percent look to Scripture for moral direction, and only three percent and eight percent, respectfully, sought tradition as their direction. Thirty-four percent of Anglicans and twenty-nine percent of Catholics relied on their quote own reason and judgment. End quote. And around fifth of both groups set store by their own intuitions or feelings. He says, it's not belief in God. This is a good one. It is not belief in God that defines our moral values, but our moral values that shape the way we think about God. You've just turned a mountain into a molehill. Without a doubt, your understanding of God defines everything about the way you see this world. It's called a biblical worldview. Proverbs 3 tells us, lean not on your own understanding. Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But you you might be thinking, Luke, you Speaking to the choir, that's not us, we're here. Look at the pews, they're kind of full. That's the famous last words of a dead church. Proverbs 11 says that disgrace 
follows pride. And an empty church is disgraceful. And I don't mean that ugly. I mean it does not glorify God. And that disgrace follows pride. When humility disappears, things get ugly. We must echo over and over and over again as Christians and as a church, Jude, now to him who is able to keep us. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling. Because why? The Lord Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. If we start keeping ourselves from stumbling, we're no different from the mess in that article. And what is that? What is that What is that to lean on God and not our own understanding? It's an exercise of faith. Saving faith. From, from the place of faith, saving faith, we operate, we function, we rest in knowing that we have a duty to obey God. But we also understand that we need God to obey God. You need God to obey God. We need His wisdom, His power, His endurance, and most of all, His forgiveness. Because we won't. We don't. We must not forget that we need Christ who came to fulfill the law. That's such an understatement. Like I, We need Christ. I'm a Christian. You need Christ. One, affects, one effect of God's moral law is to show us that we stumble. And that we need a crucified, resurrected Savior. We look at the moral law. We look at the Ten Commandments. We read the Scriptures. We think about the two great commandments. And if our if our mindset is not... I, I can't. Then you've missed the point. The gospel has come to us. God has sent his son to cover us because we failed our obligations. But not only has he covered us in the cloth of righteousness from Christ, but he has filled us with himself, with his spirit. That we might obey him. And so as we leave. Do not feel burdened. By your obligation to God. But feel privileged. To obey him. And to love him. And to love others. Now tonight we'll look a little bit more at the moral law. And it's what it does and doesn't do. And few other things. Let's pray.
Open the eyes of your servants, Lord, that we might live and keep your law, and that we will remember the shed blood of Christ that covers all our failures. Lord, if there's anyone here that thinks that the blood of Christ gives them a free pass to fail, convict their heart of the cost that he endured the wrath that he took on. Because, Father, if you convince and convict anyone of your wrath upon your Son, you will move them from not caring about their sin to hating it. And that is our hope and prayer as we grow in your Word and in Christ, that you would teach us to love righteousness, to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.